0: Coming up on the payoff, Tony Mandrich was the second pick in the 1989 NFL draft. The four other guys taken in the top five are all in the Hall of Fame. Tony went from being the incredible bulk on the cover of Sports Illustrated to years later being the incredible bust once again on the cover of Sports Illustrated. A lot of people thought that his epic fall was due to steroid use, but as he tells us, the fact that he was off steroids had something to do with it, but His incredible appetite for drugs had just about everything else to do with it. We're talking about shooting up drugs at halftime of an NFL football game. He talks about that. He talks about how he used to con doctors to get prescription drugs. And, of course, we cover his epic fall. But then we talk about the rise from the ashes and how his life is beyond his wildest dreams. And not just because he made it back to the NFL as a starter every day for three-plus years because he's sober one day at a time. I get selfish here. I had to ask him questions about how he held out his rookie year to almost fight Mike Tyson. That That's a real situation that almost came to fruition. He tells that whole story. And he tells many other interesting, entertaining, but most importantly, inspiring stories. I want to get right to Tony Mandrich, but, of course, the opener, the Ricky Henderson of the payoff Kevin Sousa. All
1: right. Our next guest was an offensive lineman at Michigan State and was the number two NFL draft choice this year. Look at this picture. This is him on the cover of Sports Illustrated, right there. Boy, talk, ladies and gentlemen, talk about cholesterol. Uh, please say hello to Tony Mandarich. Tony, where are you? Hey. Tony. How are you, buddy? What's up, man? How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's, it's not 115 degrees in Phoenix, so I'm happy. This time of year, <laughs> uh, I got a buddy
0: who actually moved. I'm from Philly, so all my friends are... Are a lot of them are still up there, and he and his wife moved from Phoenix back to the Philadelphia area. And another one of my buddies and I were talking. He said all they do is bitch about the weather now because <laughs> it's just not—it's not how it is out there, you know, this time of year.
1: It's a different animal. A hundred percent. That's why. That's why people from Philly are so tough. la <laughs> uh, Reggie White.
0: <laughs> Reggie White. Yeah. Well, but to, and, and Tony Mandridge from Canada. Uh, right. there's something in the, in, in the water, something about in being the fr- from the North. And, uh, uh, and it's easy. It's funny. If I have to call somebody on the phone, I was thinking about this. Cause I was thinking about what am I going to, what, what am I going to say to them? If I have to call somebody on the phone, that's not an alcoholic. Uh, right. It's a little different. It's a little, there's just, uh, the rhythm that I don't have when I call an alcoholic, you know, the first thing I want, I'm like, well, I'll t- I guess I'll tell him the truth. I need to get to a meeting. Uh, <laughs> I haven't been to a meeting since last Friday, and at that meeting, I said I need to get to more meetings. Oh my god! And so it's right—it's the instant uh, connectivity, that connective tissue that we have uh, yep. together. Well, it's sobriety. like
1: it's a, you know, even though it's a podcast, it's like having a meeting. It is. You yeah, know? In, a, in, a, in a slightly different format, there's no preamble, or but you're talking from one drunk to another
0: yeah and and you've got 26, 27 years?
1: yeah, God willing march 23rd will be 27'm I'm, fa- I'm a football guy, and uh-huh.
0: i I'm selfish kind of with this podcast, and I'm hearing from outside sources I need to get a little less selfish because people are actually starting to listen, but <laughs> you know this is this is you you're right in my wheelhouse, dude in in, right? in 1989, I was right. twelve years old. I was obsessed right. with football. And you know, guys like yourself, guys like Brian Bosworth, uh, yeah. which is—could you imagine? I ended up being fucked up. You get these; these are <laughs> you, you guys are my
1: heroes. <laughs> you had two great examples. Uh,
0: yeah, I really did. <laughs> it, but but it was there was something about football at that point in time. It was really—it's larger than life today. But it started to turn yeah. a corner uh, with guys like you, uh, and and just made its mark in pop culture before. Yeah there were 37 million ways of getting information. You know, there was ESPN, ABC, CBS, right. uh, Sports yeah. Illustrated. Yep. And yep. you were a, a huge part of that. What was the ego like for you in 1989? Did you know the Sports Illustrated cover? Did you know you were, you were going to be on the cover?
1: Yeah. I, I I mean, they were, you know, they had a, jeez, I want to say they spent like 10 to 14 days with me, um, half of them in Michigan, um, and then... And then it was, I want to say, a month later when I moved to LA, uh, they came out there, uh, and then you know the photographer and the uh, the writer Rick Tellender, uh came out, and you know like what was my purpose for moving to LA? What's well, my trainer was, and and I wasn't gonna hold anything back. I wanted to be kind of like it's saturated now, but it's like back then it was like the mecca of bodybuilding and or athletes and it's like I want to surround myself around that because I'm a firm believer of what you surround yourself with what your environment is you will probably be like or are like um, you know I don't hang around with uh, people in a book club because I don't read, I mean, I don't read that many books. I mean, I listen to a lot of books. I probably I probably listen to a book a week, but I don't, you know, unless it's a phenomenal book, then I'll buy it in, uh, in you know, like a hard copy.
0: But I know what you mean. You surround yourself with like-minded individuals yeah. and that yeah. scene out there, I think that picture of you was taken in Venice Beach and mm-hmm. you, you know, just look like a, a complete behemoth and this is leading up to the draft, I think that came out that cover comes out like 2 days or a week before the draft and yeah. again it's the time when sports illustrated you know somebody like my dad didn't know who you were until that sports illustrated cover cuz he was just a casual right. fan and all of a sudden right. you become you know a, a household name literally at that point in time leading up to the draft are you are you off steroids are you cycling on or off or wh- where where is that at
1: so my my last cycle was uh, fall of 89, and, you know, I would, this is how I approached it. If we looked halfway through the season, if we looked like we were going to make a bowl game, I would then switch to water-based steroids because they're out of your system a lot quicker. And then as we got even closer toward the end of the season, I would get off the water-based because, I mean, I wasn't carrying around that much fat, and that's kind of really where it stores itself. And, uh, you know, for testing. And uh, I just kind of timed it out and it was like, okay. Like, my last game was the Gator Bowl against Georgia. Uh, New Year's Eve, 1980. It was actually New Year's Eve, 1988, going into 1989. Um, So, you know, my last steroid cycle was probably October of that year. And, you know, knowing that they're going to test at the game. And then not just that, but knowing the combine was coming up in like, you know, February, March. And the combine was a big thing, is a big thing, but it's not like it is now. Like it's uh it's like a freaking circus televised. And it's like a whole week of combine. And uh, back then it was, you know, show up to Indy where they had the combine almost all the time. And I think they still do have it there yeah. most of the time. It's kind of centrally located in the country, and you know I was in a position of being a projected top five pick. So uh, people like myself, people like Dion Sanders, people like Troy Aikman.
0: Four of the top um, five picks, by the way, in your draft yes. are, are in the Hall of Fame.
1: Yes, yes. I, I mean, uh, I mean, I feel. I mean, and obviously I'm the one that's not, but I can tell you one thing: I feel honored. To have been in that class,
0: yeah, Troy Aikman, you, Barry Sanders, Derek Thomas, and then Dion.
1: Yep, and then you know, not to mention if you keep going down the list of that first round, like you have Steve Atwater, yeah, you know, Burt Burt Grossman, I believe. I mean, Burt Grossman went to
0: my high school, I went to Archbishop Carroll outside of Philly, so oh, yeah, so Burt Grossman was a a legend, you know,
1: yeah, he was, I think, in the top 10 pick, yeah, or top 12 pick. So, I mean, there was a lot of great athletes in that that first round of that draft. Um, So, So you you knew you were going to be a top five pick. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, you know, scouts are, you know, talking to you and teams are talking to you and they're obviously not violating any NCAA, you know, rules as far as talking to you before the season's over, but. Once the season was over, it was like, well, I'm not in school anymore and I'm not, I'm not eligible to play college football anymore. So then there was a lot of interviews, a lot of meetings. Um, So when I went to the combine in Indy, I did my physical, Uh, I, I did everything that you would do at a combine, except I didn't do the physical, like the running, the lifting and the other stuff, because. Being in that position of a projected top five pick, you could you had some leverage, and you could kind of make your own calls and be like, "Okay, I'm going to have my pro day at my school in six weeks." So it basically gives me six more weeks to prepare, yeah, physically after after you know getting beat up all season. Um, I believe, you know, I believe a few of the other guys in that top, those top five guys, uh, I believe a few of them did the same thing I did. And this is long before the quote unquote pro day was like a popular phrase. Yeah. You know, it wasn't common. Um, but I did it and used that leverage to my advantage to heal, you know, my body and to prepare, uh, you know, for a 40 time worked with a track coach. Now, do you um,
0: cycle back up before you go no, before your day no. at, at East Lansing, or no? You're done, and no. uh, after October,
1: last yeah, last cycle, October. Okay, and um, and re, you know, not replaced with anything except I, I'm not even sure creatine was really around then. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking those. I was taking this is a free plug for this company if they're even still around, but I was I was taking those animal pack um, vitamins. Like, they came in a little plastic sure. packet. It was like a few horse pills in there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's, and it's like, like the brown you know, and the
0: light ones. Yeah, I mean, yeah uh-huh.
1: exactly, exactly. Yeah. So, I, you know, I mean, I was doing that, and I was, you know, just doing your basic stuff, eating. I was, you know, my nutrition was pretty pretty darn on point. It's A lot has changed over the last 30 years just because of education and, you know, just science. So, were there some, you know, where was could, could the diet and the nutrition have been better? Yes, absolutely. But it was pretty darn good as it was. Um, and again, it was embellished a lot on David Letterman. You know, just you know, for you know, for clickbait, if you will. Yeah, for, yeah at that, that point in time.
0: Yeah, I mean, you're yeah. sitting there with David Letterman, and right, are are you totally? Like, were you on any drugs at that point in time? Were you on the painkillers yet?
1: No. Okay. Uh, I mean, you know, I had taken painkillers, but it wasn't, I mean, it was taken for the reason they were made. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) You you know, and and I wasn't taking them daily. And, you know, I mean, and you'll you'll know this, I mean, when you're in severe pain and you take a painkiller you I mean you get a you know you will get somewhat loopy, but for the most part, because the pain is great, it works on the pain, yeah. takes the edge off the pain, and you really don't get too euphoric, but you know i you know that's kind of how it started for me and then and then I started to realize you know I feel pretty good, like my back hurts maybe a little bit, I'll take a painkiller well, then I started getting that euphoric, high. And I was like, "This is pretty good. Like, this is better than even you know,
0: drinking." Sometimes. Yeah, my mom hates when I mention this, but I discovered she's not an addict, and I discovered her medicine cabinet. So she had just a ton (laughs) of shit left over. And I was a senior in high school, and it was like I discovered plutonium, uh, and (laughs) I was I was flying high in my second semester of senior year, and it was and it was one of those things too. You're like, well, I'm I'm okay on this. People can't tell that I'm messed up. No. And, and this is way I, I, before, yeah, yeah, way yeah. before any of the education, like, look, man, if you get wrapped up in this stuff, you're, you're, you're fucked. I mean, you have a way out yeah. that you and I'll talk about, but you're in big trouble. But we didn't even, I didn't even know back then that it was bad. I just thought I'd, I'd discovered a shortcut. There yeah, wasn't the so
1: education. Exactly. The, exactly. The the bad people or the bad drug addicts are the cocaine users, the heroin users, the, you know, it's like that, stereo, it's all stereotype, right? And, you know, I never, it never even entered my mind that it, you could be a drug addict with pharmaceuticals. You know, it was, because my stereotype was, like my stereotype back then, you know, we're talking over way way over 30 years ago is is uh, an alcoholic is a guy in the middle of summer in LA, you know, hanging out in a Row. Yeah, a Skid Row with a brown paper bag uh, that has a bottle of wine in it, and, and you know it's ninety degrees out, and it's like that to me was like a stereotypic alcoholic. Right? That's what I would envision. You know, little did I know that those types of people run Fortune 500 companies.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and and I, and I'm bouncing all around here, but you're now in that rare air. But all of a sudden, you develop into your mainline and painkillers you know, in, in yeah. injecting them. And at that point, are you thinking, whoa, this thing's got a hold of me? Or are you thinking, I, I'm Tony Mandrich, I can control it?
1: Um, you know, the, that was the <laughs> very, very first time ever I, I used the word drug addict on myself. Um, because it was introduced to me, it was a pharmaceutical, which, you know, to me made it like a little bit more you know, a white collar drug addict, if you will, instead of a skid row drug addict. Um, And I, and it's like, I know it's not laced with something because it came from a pharmacy that came from, (laughs) I almost said something funny. It came from a pharmaceutical, which you can trust. But anyways, (laughs) that being said, but
0: that shows, (laughs) but that shows how, you know, embedded that was into the, into the normal consciousness.
1: Exactly. So when I found out it was going to be an injectable, I was like, okay, well, I mean, I'm good with that because I've taken injectable painkillers before from doctors.
0: And you're but and you're jacked, it was, so it's not hard to find a vein.
1: No, not at all. I mean, they have garden hoses going down your arm. So, <laughs> you know, it's like, so then this, you know, friend of mine said, you know, no, it's like the best way to do it is to shoot it in your vein with like a little insulin needle. And that was the first time I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was like, that's what drug addicts do. And, and this is, you know, a good friend of mine, right? And, um, he said, look, man, he's like, he's like, it'll be more effective and, you know, just when he's like, you don't have to do it, but he goes like, I do it. And you can trust me on it. And, you know, I had enough trust in the guy that I knew he, he wasn't out like for ill will or to harm me. Um, and at the end of the day, I'm still the one that puts a needle in my arm, but nobody's making me do it. Yeah. So as soon as I did it, I, you know, that was like my first time where I had that kind of like, uh, that's what drug addicts do is stick a needle in their arm. But I did it and like, you know, five, six seconds later, that euphoria that usually took a painkiller 10, 15, 20 minutes to hit you was just incredible. Um, and, and then, you know, went on chasing that for three more years.
0: And for me, it's like, I can relate to that in a sense where, you know, and this is why we're addicts, uh, because it feels so good. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. okay, drug addicts do this, but now I'm high and I don't give a fuck. Because, right, <laughs> because I feel better than I, I, I've ever felt. And, right. and, the, and so then it's just, it, you, it's, it's gone. You've, you you yeah. have lost control. And if you have that, I, you know, I, I had addiction in my family, have it. And uh, mm-hmm. I just feel like I was predisposed. I felt really good the moment I had my first beer. Uh, yeah. And uh, different than than uh, other people, you know not not most people don't remember that. so you right. let's 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 backtrack a little bit because we'll get into all, all the uh, you know the recovery, and uh, I want to get mm-hmm. to the start though you grow up in Canada and yeah. there's a game plan for you, and it's to play football at at a higher level. So you move to Ohio, your senior right. year to to right. play to play football. What was that like for you to to move? That's you always hear that's a tough year for for somebody to move. You're 16 or 17. You move your whole life to Ohio, uh, and to accomplish something. That's like what a 35 year old person does for for work. Yeah, was that and a lot some for you? Never
1: do, and some people will never do stuff like that yeah. Some people are scared
0: to do it. So was that yeah, a lot for you?
1: Scared. It, it was a lot, but the the, the desire to do what I dreamed of doing was greater than the fear of doing it. If that makes sense. Yeah. So like my, my desire to, you know, uh, get a scholarship and make it to the next level and and then play college football and, you know, become a starter, become all conference with whatever school I go to and, you know, this being Michigan State all big ten and then try to make all American, then try to win the Outland trophy, then try to be the first pick in the draft, and then um become an all pro and then get in the Hall of Fame and then retire and then just ride off into the sunset and be like, Life is good.
0: And as a young man, yeah. that, that plan starts to pan out, which is ultimately yeah. you you come to learn, I come to learn. Uh, there's an acceptance with uh, sobriety that like, that's not, you know, the blueprint, my blueprint doesn't always turn out the way uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's right. supposed to, or I intended, but for you, it works. You <laughs> moved to Ohio, at least the beginning part, you moved to Ohio, your brother plays at Kent state. Right. And so Correct. he becomes your legal guardian. Uh, Correct. and so the my two parents have to sign off. Yeah. But by the way, yep. your, your parents are like basically immigrants who came over to this yep. country. They didn't have it easy.
1: Oh, Look, I mean, you know the story of my life. My life pales in comparison to what they had to go through to escape communism, to go, you know, at in the middle of the night crossing a river that's up to your neck in water, holding a small suitcase with all your belongings, and they have gun turrets at the border with the big um, lights that, you know, cross to make sure nobody's, Trying to escape the country. And what country was are, this?
0: Was this Yugoslavia, or
1: that's correct? Okay. yep So they're originally from Croatia, but that was part of that was a province in Yugoslavia, but now it's the country. Um, but you know, look, and you think you know, I mean, like that story, and then I think of me moving to Ohio. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ah, ain't yeah. That, it ain't that bad. Yeah. Uh uh-huh. <laughs> 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 right, it's yeah. like my mom, like my mom, you know, God rest her soul. She she told me stories where her mom would come into class in Yugoslavia in third grade, and she would pull her out of class, and she would talk to the teacher and say, "I'm taking my daughter out of class because the guy that used to work for us that would tend the sheep." That we own in the mountains has quit, so I need her, as a third grade girl, to take this wooden staff and tend to the sheep to make sure no wolves kill the sheep. And my mom was like, "Yeah, okay, let's go." (laughs) So, so I mean, so that being said, and I know we're bouncing around a little bit here. Oh, good. When I'm when I'm an indie. You know, I might like, come back and it's camp and it's hot and it's humid and I'm, you know, we're in our second hitting practice. And you're and sober
0: that, at this point huh? in time.
1: Yeah, sober at this point. You're kind of, I start to feel sorry for myself. You know, in my mind, I'm like, it's pretty hot, it's humid. You know, hoping hope I don't cramp up because I lost a lot of water weight in the morning practice. And then I think of that story and I think to myself, I don't have any problems. I have no problems at all. I'm I'm doing something I love to do and getting paid to a figure salary for it. And that's
0: a perspective that comes with being sober.
1: That is the priceless perspective. That <laughs> you can't buy that perspective. And you have it. A lot of people have it. A lot of people that are not even like in a program have it. Yeah. Because they, you know, it's just like circumstance. But <laughs> like it's a One of the most priceless perspectives for me is playing in the NFL as a train wreck and chemically, you know, self-induced and drinking and then playing in the NFL stone cold sober. And that perspective is, it's just unbelievable. You got a
0: second lease on life. You know, a lot of people aren't, don't get as lucky as you get or I get to basically live in the bonus round of life and then to have the opportunity to play in the NFL and let it slip through your fingers and then to get another shot at that. Clearly, you worked for it. But we're talking about, you know, that's one in a million.
1: Yeah, it's again, it's one in a million, right? Because to be drafted second is like one in a million. And then to get a second chance is one in a million. Well, the real lottery for me was getting sober. That's the biggest winner of all for me. I mean, the being second in the draft doesn't even, it pales in comparison to getting sober for me. It's like, because without the sobriety part, literally nothing else matters. I don't matter. The family doesn't matter. The employer doesn't matter. You don't matter. Everything is is bad like it just there's nothing good that comes out of it th- from my experience and from the experience that i've seen of other people
0: and so your experience if we go i want to go back to college or or or, or you're in ohio and you get recruited by michigan state you get recruited by nick saban Yeah, some guy named Nick Saban. Some guy named Nick Saban who would uh, end up coaching at Michigan State. And oh, by the way, is at Alabama now, uh, or end up being the head coach at Michigan State. But did he know? Did he, your brother played at Kent? Did he recruit your, did he, because I know he coached at Toledo, and I'm probably all over the map with like the timeline, but was he familiar with your brother or did he just know that area in Ohio? Was that the area he was recruiting? That
1: was his area. Um, because George Perlis, our head coach at Michigan State, was you know defensive coordinator for the Steelers in the '70s that won the fourth Super Bowl, so he recruited Nick as, as to be the defensive back coach. And then obviously in college, there's so much recruiting. Um, Ohio happens to be Nick. It's a hotbed. A hotbed, and it's a hot. It was a hotbed. I think it still is. Ohio, yeah. Pennsylvania. Um, you know, at Texas and Florida at the time were huge. Now there's a few more states that are like really hotbed, California included, but it was his area, but he also went to Kent state. So that was probably one of the reasons it was okay. his area. Like, I'm sure if they said, you know, do you prefer a certain, you know, couple states or whatever, but he also, Nick Saban was also good friends with John coach, John Nemec, who was my head coach at Kent Roosevelt high school.
0: Uh, and so he went we there. Had, Did he? Was he there to yeah. recruit you, or was that was your school yeah. so good and so many good players that he was looking at other guys?
1: We pro- we had like four or five, like five, like I don't know what you call them, five star like um, recruits uh, on our team. Like where, like they were like you know top in the state, and whether they were defensive linemen, offensive lineman, wide receiver, whatever. So there was a lot of scouts coming from all different colleges to watch these guys during games. So the plan was, Hey, hopefully they'll notice me too. And we'll keep our fingers crossed because you got to play well. And, you know, a lot of variables and, 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 you know, coach Nemec, I mean, him and his family, I mean, they didn't have to, you know, welcome me with open arms. And they did, because if you think about it, I'm taking, if I end up, going there and playing at Kent, at Kent Roosevelt, I'm taking the spot of an American kid. Mm. And a lot of people would be like, well, that's not fair. Yeah. Especially at a huge football
0: high school like that.
1: Yes. yes. I mean, our stadium held close to 10,000 people in high school.
0: And some kids worked all his life, right? That's his dream is to start at at that high school. And now Tony Manders comes in and takes his job.
1: Yes. And I'll tell you what, those people couldn't have been more gracious. They were some of the greatest people I had ever met in my life and, you know, developed friendships and, and, and nobody, like nobody resented it. And, 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 you know, I never even really thought about that at that age because you're young and stuff, but nobody really pushed back and, and they were all welcoming and they all wanted me to do well. And, and, you know, I like, it was almost like I, within a week of being there, it's like I'd been there for four years.
0: Did you feel like, uh, I, I hear people say that coming um 12-step and sobriety, I, I, a guy said this in particular one time when I was first coming around, you know, born on third base, thought I hit a triple. Did you appreciate that, or did you feel like a sense of entitlement because you the plan is going, It's starting. It, it, it's, everything's going according to that blueprint that you you put, put out with your brother?
1: You mean did I feel entitlement going to Kent Roosevelt? Yeah, I mean, just the whole oh. deal.
0: I mean, it seems like everything's working out for you early on.
1: Um, not really. No, no, I didn't. I was grateful. Um, I, 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 there was probably uh, a seven or eight year period where I lived in entitlement. And that was, (laughs) 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 that was close to the draft. And that was, um, all the way up till I got sober.
0: You go, you go to Michigan state. And that's big-time football. You go to Michigan State, you earn a scholarship, which is one of those things, and hang in there and take this compliment just as an, as an athlete. People are like, oh, you know, Tony Mandrich took steroids, and that's why. Mm-hmm. It's like, dude, you got. it's like the same thing with Barry Bonds. It's like Barry mm-hmm. Bonds, you had to have, I mean, he was one of the best athletes, right, yeah, just yeah, before yeah. he took steroids. And that yeah. literally uh, just puts you in a microwave as far as your physical ability yeah. is concerned. Yeah. What was the leap like? for you skill and athletically when you started to take steroids from high school into college?
1: Um, you, know, I, 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 you know, I did my first cycle in May of my spring semester. Of like, it was like right before graduation of high school. And I did like a real mild cycle. And the reason I did it was because I couldn't get over the threshold of benching 315 pounds. And I mean, now you go high hey, school athletes like <laughs> like warming up at three hundred and fifty yeah. pounds, and it's just it's crazy. And um,
0: and that's a huge deal, dude. Yeah. I was a football player, and and getting set to go play in college. And if you couldn't yeah. lift like two seventy five within your circle of football players or yeah. egomaniacs, you're kind of like you know people look down on you. It's a big yeah. fucking deal, and you go to bed at night yeah. thinking I got to fucking yeah. find a way to get up three
1: hundred pounds, yeah. or I don't yeah. count. Yes, yeah. so and your peers as they should hold you accountable and and you know my peers held me accountable but my peers also weren't like they didn't hold me accountable and said you have to do steroids they just everybody kind of kept everybody accountable like hey look make sure you go to class make sure you you know you're, we're doing all the right things the coach wants us to do and uh, you know w- when you are surrounded or if you're lucky enough to be on a team like that at any level I don't care if it's— and this was in high
0: school high or college you're talking
1: the actually both, but especially in college, because I was there five years. Yeah. Um, you know, we kept each other accountable and I kept people accountable and people kept me accountable. And I think, you know, you know, translating that even from being an athlete and on the field, your true friends in life will keep you accountable and they will call you on your shit, whether they're in the program or not, Yeah. because, because, Somebody that says, hey, you know, I see my friend here screwing up, but you know what, it's not my business I'm staying out of it. That's not really your friend. That's just somebody that doesn't want to deal with some confrontation and drama. It's like if I see one of them, and I don't have many friends by choice, and if I see one of my friends kind of straying, I, I will not embarrass them, but I will pull them aside if we're in a group or something it's like, hey, man, like, FYI, this is what I see you doing. Now, I don't know if you see yourself doing it, but I'm just making you aware of it. And I'm telling you because I love you. And and I don't want any harm done to you. And I'm not judging you or, or anything like that. I'm your friend. That is, to me, that's like a huge part of being like a legitimate, true friend. And I can tell you, I have less than five friends like w- what I consider friends. I have thousands of acquaintances. Yeah. But I have very few friends and and I because I I also can't dedicate like for my definition of friendship and what I expect out of a friend, I can't dedicate that much time to more than two or three or four or five friends. It's like once it becomes more than that, then you know, I'm I'm spreading myself too thin. Yeah. If I'm expecting them to do and treat me a certain way, and I'm going to treat them that same way, I really can't juggle more than three or four like really really close friends that will know my deepest darkest secrets or or whatever the case may be. You know, it's like or you know, somebody you talk to about your mom dying or like you have the acquaintance people, and then you have those people that are like you know, that sit
0: with you. Yeah. That's why and you, yeah. I relate that to the, to, to, you know, being sober in 12 steps and AA, because when you have a sponsor you work with for a long time, yeah. uh, they know everything and it's an awesome relationship and okay, life happens. Maybe you have to get yeah. a new sponsor or whatever, but then you've got to start all over with the deepest of shit and it's good. It can be healthy because you add another person to your circle, but at the same time, I like somebody who already knows all my layers where I can just pick yeah. up the phone and call them and they know the context. I mean, and that's the beautiful, the beautiful thing about AA, you can pick up the phone and call somebody in your circle and, and you can get right to it, dude. Like we did today. Yeah. You know, there's no, yeah. let's get, those are my favorite kind of alcoholics uh, that I when agree. somebody calls you up and they just, if <laughs> they tells you the dirtiest darkest thing they just thought right. about or right. they're going through and you're like, okay, yeah. this is now I'm, right. this is my wheelhouse.
1: And it's no it's and there's no shock value to them, it's like,
0: and it's the beauty yeah. of the vulnerability, right? Like it feels right, good right, to be a part of that,
1: right, and they know how messed up we are <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's like, yeah, I mean it's you know it's that, I mean there's so much strength and vulnerability, but I wouldn't have said this three or four or five years ago, but this vulnerability has changed um into a different word of something else that I don't even want to talk about uh, of the society that's going on here in the US and, and um, it, it's amazing to me how much tw- the tools of the 12 steps have helped um, observe things in, in this country um, and be like, you know what uh, it, you know the only thing this program promises us is if we follow these guidelines, that we won't have to drink again yeah. And, and, and the promises will come true and then you know like the last two years have been you know rough for everybody and uh oh it's your pharmaceutical and um and then <laughs> did i did i just think out loud yeah um and then uh, <laughs> and then um it, it gives like those tools apply you know you apply them to your life and they're great tools for anybody to live by you know you take the word alcohol out of them and just you know you do the 12 steps and it's like yeah this is a great outline for how to live life even if you don't have an addiction problem
0: so i gotta ask you, know, you just hey. generally out of curiosity where do you think like we're, we're going like do you think it's positive that people are taking advantage of this vulnerability or do you think it's kind of we're, we're almost going in a, in a in a direction because the guy i, co- I played for in college this guy Jim Reed says uh, he's worried about society. Uh, you know, the, he's worried about that stuff you talk about, like the accountability, yeah. right? Like we're, we're yeah, falling yeah. off
1: a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think we're falling off a lot. Like, one thing for sure is, um, and when I say we, uh, I'm, I'm talking about in masses, um, we've gotten extremely soft, um, we've gotten extremely entitled. We've gotten extremely unaccountable um, and extremely not competent. Yeah. Um, we're we're here's like an analogy I'll give you that when it comes up in conversation with people that I will use periodically um, is uh, I don't care if the person is male or female, black or white, purple or green. Um, what their sex is, what their sexual preference is. I want the person who's the most qualified flying the airplane. So it's about competence. It's not about all these other things that people are being distracted by. And a lot of people have started to use all these distractions and excuses for, not, for their lack of competency. And, you know, I mean, would you, you know, like if, if, you know, you didn't like, uh, well, h- even in recent history, in the last 50 years, it's like if somebody said, yeah, the pilot of this 747 is a female, it, it would probably be kind of like, you know, you'd raise an eyebrow because people would be like, well, you know, women shouldn't be flying planes and this and that. And it's like, Look, I don't care what who it is or what they are or what the skin color is. Are they a good pilot? Are they qualified? Are they a good that's what I want. I want the best pilot. Hey, I also want the best neurosurgeon. I also want the best, you know, whatever the job is. I, I don't care about their religion, their creed. You know, all that all this stuff is like I want the most qualified person that does the job. I don't want the person that's gonna use um, You know, look, I, I could sit here and cry about, hey, I was suppressed being from Canada, going to the US, not having a good chance to play college football or make it to the Bigs or this or that. And it was like, no, you know, it's like, I mean, and I'd still be in Canada. And it's like at some point, something inside of me was like, you grab the bull by the horns. And you make
0: shit happen. Well, dude, I've read about you and and look, man, this is like, uh, forget about your politics, but you have the same slogan, um, or call to arms that, you know, president Obama did years ago. Like, why not? Why not me? You know, like, right. like, exactly. like, so it's, you know, why not me? And it's kind of like, I can do it. I can work for it. Uh, you know, I Yeah, you got to have skin in the game, but you got and it's and that's why we can bring it back to sobriety. It's like faith without works is dead. I can walk into a room and say, oh, man, like, you know, my life or X, Y and Z happened. I'm predisposed to alcohol. And I mean, I had a pretty good growing up, so I'm not even saying me, but somebody can. And. You know, it's just kind of like, hey, are you going to get busy? Are you going to, you know, are you going to bring yeah. the shovel cuz God's going to do the rest? And and yeah. for me on days where I don't bring the shovel, I feel like shit. And I've been I've, right. I'm part of a program that's taught me that, well, that's up to you, dude. You know, like you control your attitude. You control how I feel because I know when I do hard things, I feel good. And there's that there's that self-esteem. And when I do easy shit, I don't feel I I don't feel I feel not good about myself.
1: Right. And it's you know it, it, when i come to people with problems or issues that i have or or you know i'm struggling with something whether it's current present day or something happened in the past and we'll talk about it and then that person and including me if somebody's talking to me or if i'm talking to somebody they'll say okay so what are you going to do about it and that's an action right it's like okay so you have talked about it. We've got it laid out. We see what the problem is. We see what's eating your lunch. Uh, unhealthy to be resentment. It breeds a disease if you hang on to shit. All this stuff. So, what do you think we should do about it to make it better? And then we look for solutions, and we're solution orientated and solution based. Um, we're not. We're not of that finger pointing generation. And and I was you know. I'm gonna include myself, it's not a generation, it's just a kind of personality or, yeah. or personality. It's like, hey, I was part of that for a decade. I was the finger pointer. Because yeah. it was Green Bay's fault, I was not making it. And then it was the media's fault. And then that week before I got sober, when I looked in the mirror, I was like, hmm, there's a common denominator in all this. Stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah, and I don't, and and I'm not liking what I see in the mirror. Yeah, and uh, so I was like, maybe I should stop pointing the finger. Maybe I should stop making excuses. Maybe I should listen to somebody else. And, and, and you know, and, and that word willingness. It was like I became willing to listen to somebody else because I was like, I wasn't convinced yet, but I had had a moment of maybe i don't have all the answers right
0: yeah and that's what yeah. it takes the willingness like like okay yeah. let me let me open my mind to cuz 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 look you know i gave my life you know i've given my life to alcohol why not try giving it to god like my whole life i've given it to alcohol and drugs shoot mm-hmm. i mean i might as well try something different yeah and because my life is a wreck
1: yeah it's like apparently what i'm doing is not working i'm not on a winning streak Right. So when people, uh, I love it when people come to the program and they're at their, you know, their first meeting or something and they're like, well, you know, and they share and they're like, and, and, and you know, the, you have the court ordered people and then you have people that are not sure their wife wants them to go or their husband wants them to go or their mom and dad want them to go. And, or, or they're just curious. They're like, you know, maybe I have a drinking problem and, and, and inside, I kind of giggle, right? And and I, I obviously don't <laughs> express that yeah. because I don't want them to feel like they're being judged because I'm not judging them. What I'm seeing is myself. And and what I'm seeing is, is is it necessary to wonder if you're an alcoholic if you're not an alcoholic? <laughs> right? Absolutely. It's like the acid test. Yeah. It's the acid test. I've never and this is funny to say these days, just because of what's going on in society, but I never have woken up wondering if I was a woman. Okay. Yeah. Why? Because I'm not now, you know, saying that three years ago is different than saying it now because some people are waking up and saying, well, I feel like a woman today. Yeah. Right. And but it's but like, for you being an
0: alcoholic is black and white. Right.
1: It's it's crystal clear. Yeah. And that's not, and, and, you know, me using that example, that doesn't, I'm not talking bad about those people. I'm just giving an example. It's like what people, you know, feel like somebody, you know, like even my parents were like, are you sure? Like this is after years of sobriety. They're like, are you sure you can't have one drink? And I'm like, trust me, (laughs) I'm positive. (laughs) You know, yeah, and, and, and they're just trying to be loving parents.
0: But that response, dude, is, is a response of somebody who's working a program, because if, you're, if I'm like teetering or maybe I'm in early sobriety, I'm just looking for an excuse. I'm looking for somebody to say, yeah. maybe you're not. Try one, you know, and, and that's yeah. what we talk about the work and, and being sober. Not only does it lead to a fulfilling life, but it also keeps you further away from from relapse because and you didn't yeah. relapse, right? You got sober your first time and then you, yes. you stuck with it.
1: I've never found it necessary to go back out.
0: All right, so hold on. So you, you end up, you're in college, and you're, yeah. you're at Michigan State. You start to take steroids. You start to literally, like a rocket ship, take off Like a, as an offensive lineman. After a certain point in time, you didn't start off all four years, did you? Um, my first year was a red
1: shirt, Then I started the last four years.
0: So you started the last four years, and you're playing – You know, every, as a kid growing up watching ABC, it seemed like Michigan State really first came on my radar because, well, Magic Johnson, um, a little before my time, but of course I knew about Magic Johnson.
1: And there was a lot of great ones. Joe DeLaMalur played there. Judd Heathcote, right? We're talking basketball now. Um, Judd Judd Heathcote was there when I was there, and his assistant with some guy named
0: Thomas. <laughs> it's still rare. It's amazing. And that speaks <laughs> of the, to Michigan State. You know, even though Saban right, yeah. left to go to LSU, I mean, yeah. man, that's yeah. an incredibly rich uh basketball, yeah. football history. And you're a, you're a part of that. But you, Michigan State comes on my radar playing Notre Dame uh, football-wise, you know. And that's how mm-hmm. I get to know you. I think was Percy Snow on your team.
1: Yep, Percy Snow, Lorenzo White. Lorenzo White, um, yeah. Percy yeah. Snow, whose
0: brother Eric Snow played for the Sixers. Uh yep, Andre Andre
1: Risen.
0: Andre Risen. Was he on your team too?
1: Yeah, we we came in together.
0: What the hell was he like?
1: Andre's a great guy. Um, Like, you know, when you cut all the bullshit and, all, you know, the media and then you, you know, even if, if you get Andre one on one, he's a great guy. Um, I know he he said some stuff about a year ago, a year and a half ago, about some stuff that had to do with Michigan State and. Oh yeah, what like, did
0: he what did he say? Could you feel comfortable saying it? I, I can look it up.
1: Well, it was a, I mean, it was it was a fact. It happened. I saw
0: it happened. Oh the oh oh he was abused right racially.
1: Well, when he got slapped in the head. That's right. By, okay. By our co- one of our coaches at Iowa at halftime, or it was either halftime or, or before kickoff when we come back to the locker room, and it was like I know that coach, I know Andre, I know our how our team was, and uh, you know, look, I got hit by that coach a lot, you know during during like practices or and it wasn't. It wasn't like being hit because I'm going to hit you to hit you or I'm going to grab your face mask and pull you across the line of scrimmage and say, hey, 30 minutes ago when we were in film, watching film, didn't I say if this guy doesn't come on a blitz, this other linebacker might come on a dog? Didn't we cover that? Because I missed it in practice. And I'm like, you know, yes, sir. And he's like, you know, so why, you know, expletive, expletive, (laughs) expletive. Did you miss it here? And it's like, hey, fucked up, and it's not going to happen again. So, listen, I'm not going to go to the media and say, hey, man, I feel like uh, I was abused by my coach because he pulled me across the line of scrimmage at practice, embarrassed me in front of all my peers, and um, to try to coach me. I'm like... Kind of like, hey, don't do it again. And that coach, for me. I tell you what, he taught me life lessons that I carried my whole life.
0: Yeah, there's a guy who there. coached us. At, I went to the University of Richmond, and I went to play, and I couldn't play because I had cardiomyopathy. But they kept me on scholarship, and I, mm-hmm. I was lucky enough to be just a part of the nest. And uh, yeah, or, yeah, 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 yeah. And and uh, we had, guys, I mean, guys did. There's a guy who coached for me. Who coached us? Not for me. Nobody's ever coached for me. But co- who coached us? Who is the defensive coordinator now at the Jags? And the guy was an absolute maniac. And the stuff he yeah. did in our locker room as kids, I mean, it was like you know you get put in jail. Um, and, but yeah, it absolutely. actually helped us. You know, uh, it, it made absolutely. us better men. And not one person on the team that I know of has come forward and said, "Oh man, this was a terrible experience." Right. It was. It made us. You know, it it helped us develop accountability. And even talking to you now about him, I, I kind of sit up straight. Um, so we could talk about this all day, but I want to get back to you yeah. at Michigan State because I only have you for yeah. so long. You're at Michigan State. Uh, you start for all four years. You play with Bad Moon Rising and all those other guys. And what yeah. it sounds like is Andre's still family regardless. Um,
1: I absolutely. I mean, yeah. I, was, yeah, you know, I haven't talked to him in a few, like, four or five years. But, yeah, I mean, yeah. I don't hold anything against him. I mean, he's one of my brothers, as far as I'm concerned.
0: And that's what's so cool about sports and college, and and uh, yeah. you know the race stuff and the melting pot. And uh,
1: yeah, you know,
0: yeah. it's 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 brothers. It comes and,
1: down to co- it. Comes down to confidence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. right. Yeah.
1: Who's going to start? Who's going to start at quarterback? Who's going to start at left guard? The one who's the best quarterback on our team and the one who's the best left guard.
0: Yeah, you don't, you don't see They're it. You don't see it. Yeah. Right,
1: they're not going to base it on if you got a 3.0 on your math test.
0: Yeah, because somebody will get you know killed.
1: Right, <laughs> yeah. right. So going, you've, you've done your geometry well, but you didn't make the block.
0: So so you're at Michigan State, and you're, you're taking off. Your profile now starts to take off like a rocket ship. Every time we look at Tony Mandrich highlights, they got you running a guy off the screen or a pancake block. Uh, as an offensive lineman, you were the first person that I'd ever really knew outside of some of the, the hogs with, uh, with the Redskins. Yep. Jacoby. Joe, yep. Uh-huh. Yeah, like Red. uh, Joe Jacoby, who I'm, 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 uh, I'm missing. Oh, some some, big, Jim L- big Lachey. Man. Um, yeah. Yeah. So had, those guys, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 So those guys with the Redskins were made famous and you were the, uh, another one of the offensive linemen that I, you know, I'd heard of and seen mm-hmm. and, you're high, you're extremely high profile. How was it navigate? What was it drinking like in college?
1: <laughs> You'll find this amusing. Um, my drinking, in co- like, I mean, yeah, I partied and I got wasted and stuff. Um, but not very often because I was, I, I mean, I was, I was putting enough, Stress on my liver, kidneys, my organs from taking steroids. That I thought to myself, well, I don't want to keep like add even more stress, like you know, physical stress on my organs and my body by coupling it with drinking, right? So I'm, and my goal of making it to the next level was more important to me than partying. Now that doesn't mean I didn't go out. And then, and there'd be a lot of times I'd go out and have a beer or a drink. And that was not a big deal. But to go out and, like, party, like, all the time, um, it, I mean, I didn't do it nearly as much as, you uh, know, a lot of – uh, I didn't do it nearly as much as people might think I did. Was it smart um, for
0: you to go when you go to – when you get done – you guys played in the Rose Bowl too, right? Yeah. So you, you
1: – Yeah, we beat – you beat we, beat USC. USC, yeah, yeah. we beat USC twice that year. We actually opened up with USC at a non-conference game at home um, that year, and then we ended up seeing them in the Rose Bowl that year. Do you think that playing uh, on such a big
0: stage lended itself to, to you being taken so highly in the draft? I mean, you were on TVs every, every week, weekend, or do you think it was the fact that, you know, hey, they
1: were going to find you regardless? Well... I mean, I think they're gonna find you regardless. Okay. <laughs> I, I I I mean, you you know, it's like look at Randy Moss I think he played at Marshall. Uh, um, you know, play, I, where did Jerry Rice play? I can't Mississippi remember. I Valley State. It, yeah, I mean, it's like where's that? Yeah. Besides Mississippi, right? <laughs> so it's like if you're if you're good they're going to find you. Yeah.
0: So were you ready? They may,
1: yeah, they may do some extra testing on drills and stuff to make sure, because they're going to take into consideration the competition you play against. Is it the same competition week in and week out that Alabama plays, that Georgia plays, that you, that, you know, the sec plays like they're like playing a freaking bowl game every weekend. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. No, the big 10. I mean, you're playing in the big 10. It's, it's no joke. Yeah. So the same, and it was the same for Big Ten. It's like you know, you play Michigan, you play Ohio State, you play Wisconsin. You know, so it's yeah. It's uh, it, I think if if you're good enough, you will be found even in the Division three school.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. Just for for young people coming up, uh, yes, absolutely. You, you bust your ass. You're a late bloomer. You they, will make it. Yeah, they will find you. So you get found. I mean, earlier in your in your tenure at Michigan State, and all these accolades, you're, you're this decorated offensive lineman and you move into the draft. And like I said, you become sort of a household name, but the ego I, from the mm-hmm. outside, it looks like the ego's out of control. Tony, you didn't, I remember this as a kid, you held out, um, going into your rookie year as an offensive lineman. Uh, and because you were talking about fighting Mike Tyson. Yeah, that's,
1: yeah,
0: that was- that, that's true. Right. <laughs>
1: Well, it's a real story. Yeah, I mean, that's like that's like a thing that really happened. Like, so, what? How
0: did that? Was, de- how did that develop?
1: I mean, I'm living in L.A., working out with my trainer, and um, I already have an agent at the time. Who was your agent, <laughs> by the way? It was a guy named Vern Sharba, and he was actually one of my brother's coaches at Kent State. Then, like my my brother at Kent State in five in five years had four head coaches. Oh, wow. Um, so, you know, Vern was on the staff of, of early of my brother's career at Kent State. And then Vern didn't go back into coaching. He became an agent, but he was somebody that always was a great guy and, and somebody that obviously I trusted and my brother trusted. So, and he went into that business of becoming an agent and helping players, you know, invest their money and and so on and so on. So he became my agent. So he calls me one day and he says, hey, he goes. I got a call, and he goes. I kind of had to double check some things because, you know, this is long before internet. So he's like, uh, "I got. We've got an offer to see if you'd be willing to fight Mike Tyson for like an exhibition fight."
0: Was Don King involved?
1: Yes. And. Uh, and I said, I said Vern, I said, are you pulling my leg? Like, are you kidding me? It's like Mike Tyson's a holy terror, right? I don't care if I'm six six and three ten and strong as an ox and all this. You know, I'm going into an arena that's not my arena. It, it would be the same as saying, Hey Mike, put on some shoulder pads and a helmet. Let's do a fourth and one drive block, right? So it's like. It, he would get crushed on that. I'm stepping into his arena. The chances of me, you know surviving is a good word, probably It's <laughs> probably not all that great, right? But it's like, hey, if there's if there's you know uh, a good negotiation and uh, if the money's right, um I'll take the risk. And so it was a legitimate promoter, Shelley Finkel, at a New sure. York. And a legitimate, like even more legitimate and well known manager, Lou Duva. Sure. You know, who did Oscar De La Jolla, Evander Hollifield. I mean, Shelly Finkel basically on.
0: became Tyson's manager down the road.
1: Yeah, down the road, right. And now a word from our sponsors. So they fly out to LA. And they want, at first, you know, I told them, yeah, I'd be willing. And then they said, okay, our next step is we need to find out if you have any boxing skills. So we're going to fly out to LA. We're going to get into a boxing gym and we're going to, you know, put you through some drills. And it's like, they're like, you know, do you have any boxing skills? And I'm like, well, I mean, street fighting is not boxing skills. And they're like, correct. And I said, "So then no, I don't have to <laughs> <laughs> right should i Should I lead with the chin you know? <laughs> so so they they fly out and they put me through uh it was like a four hour workout, and you know what? Ludova was like, there's a I mean, there's no doubt that I can teach you what you need to know." Uh, you know, you have the strength, you have the speed, you have the quickness, you have the power. Um, and he's like, we need nine months of solid, concentrated boxing training and conditioning. And, and I said, Hey, you know, I'll do it. If we can negotiate it with their, you know, Tyson's people, you know, uh, I'm willing to do it and, and put football off for a year. And, and, you know, I was in negotiations with the Packers and, and I kind of use it as a leverage. Sure. So, um, you know, they, they were at the $5 million mark. Okay. And my, you know, my ego probably saved my butt here. I was like, explain to them what I just said, explain to you. I said, look, I'm going to some Mike Tyson's arena where he is just destroying people. And for five million dollars I'm risking my life. So I said I wanted, you know, ten million. This is obviously my ego even wants more. But I'm also like, hey, if I if I do get, you know, permanently somehow injured, it's probably not gonna happen. I mean, if I get knocked out, I get knocked out. It doesn't mean you're permanently injured, but I mean that guy I still believe to this day could probably permanently injure somebody. Yeah. Oh, um, yeah. He was he was one of my favorite fighters. Yeah. Right. I mean, and then um, and then it was like we went back and forth, back and forth, and then I think what happened was Green Bay started to see that it wasn't just talk, that it was legitimate. Like this could potentially happen. Then all of a sudden they became more willing to come up to our numbers for football negotiation. And I wanted to be the first seven figure a year lineman um, in the NFL, offensive line, And I wish, uh, you know, I wish I could say I did this for the other offensive lineman, like that was my motivation, but it wasn't. Greed was my motivation. but I was the first offensive lineman to make over a million dollars a year in the NFL. The next year, I believe there were 27. So it broke kind of like the, it was the critical mass that hit. And then everybody did have a legitimate like beef with it. Like not with me so much, but with the owners or general managers who they would negotiate with. And they'd be like, look, this guy got paid seven figures without stepping foot on the field. And here I am like, you know, putting myself as somebody else. Anthony shoot, Munoz boy, or whoever. It's like, like, yeah. One of was the, was the greatest like, ever. Yeah, yeah. One of the greatest ever. Anthony Munoz or Jackie Slater or, yeah. and then list and then the list goes on and it's like who've already got three, four five, six Pro Bowls under their belt and they're getting paid 300 grand a year.
0: So how does it and, how work out for you? When you go into, when you walk into the locker room, uh, when you finally do, end up. Did so, we wrap? Did we wrap up the Tyson story? By the way, so they. Yeah. 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 Nothing. Yeah, did you nothing Did you ever not. have any communication with with Iron Mike? Uh, per, like.
1: I did later in in later years, okay. and I did just recently a year ago. But um, where did
0: you see him a year ago, yeah. or talk to him a year ago?
1: I talked to him a year ago. I was going to go on his podcast, and it was all scheduled. And then he had, I think he had an offer that probably paid some good money to do an appearance in Europe. Okay. Yeah. So it was like one of those let's reschedule. And then we never got through. He's, he's one
0: of special. those guys. I uh, like you, I listened to his book recently and uh, it's amazing, you know, where he can, the money he can drum up just for, you know, showing up and, and somewhere.
1: You know, <laughs> you know, a lot of people think Mike Tyson is not smart. Mike Tyson's a very bright guy. Um, he, he, the way sometimes he presents himself and he gets emotionally, you know, he'll go off the handle or whatever. It's like, that's all people want to focus on. But if you look at his life and if you look at his, yeah, he's made some bad decisions. He's made some great decisions. He, you can't like, you can't be dumb and be in the position that he's in. He has made some very wise decisions, more of them, in The latter part of
0: his life, yeah, and he keeps reinventing Um, himself in one way or another, exactly. And there's
1: something to be said
0: for that, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, because those skills that he had right in the ring have probably deteriorated. Now, you could still, you know, pummel somebody, like you said, but he, I don't want to fight him, yeah, he knows what he's doing. (laughs) So, you get to Green Bay, are people like you? September is when you start, you miss all training camp. What, what, what is that like for you to integrate yourself into the locker room, and where is the addiction or the alcoholism at that point? Are you totally like, you're free of alcohol and drugs when you start off as a rookie or is it starting to ramp up? Yeah,
1: starting to ramp up. And it's probably two months before I signed, it started to ramp up. So when you're out in LA and you're training, getting
0: ready for the season, you start to main, are are you just taking orally these drugs or are you mainlining them? No,
1: mainlining already. And uh, mainline the first, two years in Green Bay, and then and then I was like, I then knew the solution that the problem is the main lining. It's not the other 60, 70, 80 painkillers I've taken that are oral. Yeah. So um, I I straightened myself out, and I get off the injectables, and I now I'm getting my life together. And, you know, you know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. So I lasted for about six hours, and then I was, you know, just kept taking more oral.
0: How how were you as a uh, performing uh, and and were you, were you fucked up a practice or before games? There was no performing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we can call it what we want, but <laughs> look, I'm going to call myself out. There was no performing. It was like, and, and I'm not saying that's an excuse. I take full responsibility, full accountability for my nonsense. Um, but I was deep in, you know, I was deep in my disease and, uh, the most important thing to me, I mean, here, look, you're going to one of the greatest places in the country of tradition and football and history. And there I am a smug ass complaining about, well, there's no marketing opportunities there. I want this. I want that. And that's, you know, touching on what I said earlier. That's when I had that entitled privileged entitlement kind of thing. And it's like, um, didn't work then, and it's not working for people
0: now. And you're not on steroids anymore. And no, and and so no. there's never went there, back. Yeah, there's two there's there's double-edged sword here. Now you you probably stopped because the testing in the NFL was just so rigorous, right? It was so That's much exactly. different than the NFL. That's but exactly. so now you're missing that physical um, component. Uh-huh. But also for me, I just take speed even as a as a person and as when I played, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a mental component to that. I felt like I was better when I was on these drugs. So now you're just completely naked as you kind of roll into the NFL. Still a good athlete, right? You're still big and strong, but. Yeah,
1: I'm 10, 15% weaker. So if I mention 600, and you're 15, 20% weaker, you're still pretty strong. Yeah. And and, and so yeah, but you're right. In, In my opinion, and this is only my opinion, and my personal experience, and the people that I've seen um i feel that and, and you know steroids work like they work fantastic and you do take a risk but they are way more psychologically a problem than they are physically like,
0: how how, and, how so like like as far as psych- well, like like they're so positive for you to get off them there's you, such a decline
1: You, you just explained it. You said, uh, I felt like I had the edge on people. Like psychologically, I felt that I could do things that, you know, and and it's like, like you mentioned, like speed. It's like, like you just know, like I can do something and you're more confident in yourself. And even if you're scared, you can get over that fear because you know that you've got an edge to you and that you're taking something. So when that, Stops. And for me, when I stopped the steroid use, because the testing was more rigorous than college football was, I almost instantly tra- like went to painkillers and alcohol. Uh, and when I say alcohol, I mean drinking alcoholically. Um, I, you know, I almost went to that like in a you know, four to eight week period. It transitioned like to fill the void instead of filling the void with spirit. I filled it with spirits, you know, <laughs> you know yes. like demons, like demons, yeah. you know, and, 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 uh, and the spirits of, of alcohol, but, uh, it's, you know, you and I now looking back, it's like, it makes total sense. It's like, that's what we do when we're in the midst of our disease. It's like the void has to be filled. Like the void was created because the steroids were removed. Well, what's it going to be filled up with now? Well, I chose, you know, painkillers and, and alcohol. I don't even know
0: and, at that juncture in your life you choose. Uh, you know, now, yeah, right. now we know. Right. Uh, but
1: right. no, I, no, I agree, I yeah. agree. But looking back, yeah, like, sure. Looking back, you're like, oh, I can see where I replaced that with food, or I replaced it with sex, or I replaced it with shopping, or sure. I replaced it with gambling, or I replaced. It was always like, hey, stop replacing and just stop. For well,
0: fact. something outside of myself. I was talking to another alcoholic today. Right. It's like I constantly I'm searching outside of myself to make yeah. myself feel better. And that's not just yeah. not, that's your, you're chasing, you're chasing yeah. your tail. So, uh, and I'm curious about this. So you're using a, a shitload and you're drinking a lot. I uh, using a lot of the painkillers. Are you like, are, are you, need, are you taking painkillers or drinking before practice or before games? Like, are you ever taking painkillers in the locker room or drinking in the locker room?
1: Only every practice. <laughs> And only every game. So you're um, sure you're
0: drinking before games, or or, or eating painkillers before more, games?
1: More, it's more painkillers before the games. After the games, it's more drinking. Okay. Um. I mean, I remember being in uh, at card. I mean, at a Sun Devil Stadium at ASU. That's when the Phoenix Cardinals. That that was their home stadium. They just moved so, from St. Know, Louis. Yeah. And, you know, so that really dating myself. So this is like 1990, <laughs> 1991, maybe. And at halftime in the locker room, I go into a stall and I'm sticking a needle in my arm and I'm, st- and I'm like a starter. And, you know, and then I'm like, cause I know that this painkiller is going to make me looser, which is going to make me play better. Did it? You know? Oh my God. Are you kidding me?
0: <laughs> <laughs> so, were you getting your... So, were you getting, was it the opposite of the guy we saw running people off, off film when you're watching film on, on Mondays or whenever you guys did in Green Bay? Are you like, fuck, man, yeah. I, I look like, I look terrible.
1: Well, we, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I played, there were, there were moments of glimpses of, you know, playing well, but the majority of it was, um, I mean, I was like when I played in college, I played to break people's will and I played to, and you know, I I often use the word torture, but I wanted to break their will so they didn't want to play against me. When I got to Green Bay, it was almost like the opposite and uh, I became much more passive, Um, you know. And, and and that's a big thing with opiates. I mean, they're downers. It's, they're it's a, a opiate is a downer. But they'll so make an addict of, like
0: me or you. They'll make us think we're charged up, kind of.
1: Exactly. And and so I I could tell, like in my play, that I was like, yeah, I could still hit people pretty good, but I was so disinterested because my quote unquote, you know, it seemed like my full time job was how to get more doctors, to get more prescriptions, to get, you know, more, more painkillers.
0: And, and I don't want to spend all day on this, but it's so interesting. Cause I, I've heard this about you. I heard you say this, you had a way to figure out the best way to get prescriptions because I guess there were like different classes. Right. And so, yes. so I'll pre- break that down real quick.
1: So there's a there's a thing called a PDR. It's physician's desk reference. It's almost like a it's this huge ginormous book, and they probably don't even have them in doctors' offices anymore because of the internet. But I remember them. You remember them? Like they were just like they had every single drug that any pharmaceutical made and what it did and this and that. So if you you know. That's how I knew, That's how it. I knew
0: what I was taking when I stole something
1: from somebody. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. The prescription pad. Yeah. Um, and, and you know it's like there's that whole section on narcotics, right? So then it says whether they're triplicate prescriptions, because this was before electronics, before there was triplicates or duplicates. Well, triplicates were stronger because a copy stayed in the doctor's office, a copy stayed with the pharmacy and a copy of that triplicate went to the uh, DEA drug enforcement agency. Yeah. Um, duplicates are still will mind alter and they'll still like, you know, give you that high, not as much as a triplicate would. Um, but a duplicate prescription goes to the doctor's office and the pharmacy and that's it. So it was trying to find that sweet spot of which are the best duplicates to take to raise the least amount of red flag for getting, you know, my drugs. What was the best
0: duplicate you found?
1: The best duplicate I found was the injectable, and it was called Stadol, S-T-A-B-O-L. And the purpose, the main purpose of Stadol um, in Canada it's called Nubain, N-U-B-I-A-N or something like that, Nubain, the same drug, just different name. It's given uh, to women that are going into labor. So it takes the edge off of their pain, but it still lets them be able to push when they need to push. Um, but it doesn't like numb you so much that, you know, like you can you still do something. A, it's not like
0: you're on heroin you 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 or your right, phone. Right. So how are yeah, you yeah, how you know, like, are you getting this? What, on, on based on what? Are you based on that you're Tony Mandrich and you can sweet talk a doctor or did you have back pain or?
1: Uh <laughs> <laughs> Well look, let's just call it black and white. I was just conning people. Yeah. I was conning doctors and I was uh house, like when I think of this it really makes me go, damn. Like, I, I had the balls to walk into certain pharmacies, kind of slowly build a relationship with the pharmacist, getting legitimate prescriptions, and then being like, hey, you know, um, for like five 500 bucks cash, do you think I could get some of this? And, you know, and then all of a sudden they're like, you know, they kind of look around and they're like, you know, yeah, come back in 20 minutes. You know, and it's like that first time you do it, you're like, God, I hope when I come back, the feds may wait in front of me. Yeah. You know, uh huh. and you're hoping that the guy will take the $500 cash or whatever the amount of money was or whatever, or, or whether they were green Bay Packers tickets or whatever. <laughs> um, and never once did anybody decline. Oh, it's a man. It's kind of like, and that's, and that's a red flag. Like today, I look at that and I'm like, that's a huge red flag. And 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 there are, I mean, and and that's 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 not a blanket statement for all pharmacists. That's just was my experience because there were pharmacists I didn't approach with that because just I could knew. just knew. Tell I could just tell. Yeah, we can tell. Quick. Yeah. And I'm like, I want nothing to do with that. Like the book guy. <laughs> I'll be, I'll, I'll be in handcuffs in 20 minutes. You know? So
0: what's the low point? You don't, you know, you never had any major run-ins with the law, but what's the low point in the NFL um, as, as we're kind of moving towards sobriety? Uh, I, you
1: know, I, I mean, it was a, almost like a low point decade, but, like the catalyst low point, I, it wasn't even the catalyst because I didn't change for three more years, but it was a pretty big blow to my ego um, when that second SI cover came out saying The Incredible Bus. Yeah. You know, because I was thinking to myself, even back then, I thought, man, I had the world in the palm of my hand. Because the first one, one, for
0: people ago. that don't know, said The Incredible Bulk.
1: Yeah. And, this and one said, was, you yeah. know, mm-hmm. yeah, and that, and that was coined by SI. I didn't say that, they did. And but I ran with it. I'm like, I'll run with it. And they were, you know, like you had mentioned earlier, publications back then were few and far between. And they were a huge authority in the sports world. Like if if they did stories in SI about an Olympian or an athlete, it's like that was like not gospel, but it's like this is a credible source of news of sports news. So, you know, and they put the incredible bust on and it's like.
0: They did a fictitious story about a pitcher for the Mets, Sid Finch. Person didn't exist, but they wrote an April Fool's Day story about it. And people thought this pitcher could throw 180 miles or whatever. Um, oh, my God. Yeah. So that's just to give a window into Sports Illustrated. That was back in like 1987. Yeah. But yeah, so the incredible bust, it says on the cover yeah. now. And yeah. are, do you just kind of drink and take drugs through that? Because you're still in the league, right?
1: yeah that's my last year in the league. It was ninety two um it was like I had like two months it was like no October, November, whatever it was and I was ending like when I was coming to the end of my four year contract I was put on injured reserve because of a pretty bad concussion that year and um that came out, and yeah, that was like a huge like ego blow, but it was true. You know, it's like, I probably, at that time, I know I didn't admit that it was true. I was like, it's Green Bay's fault, media's fault. Um, It was everybody's fault but mine. But, you know, once I got sober and looked back, I'm like, well, they nailed it. They're they're absolutely right with what they wrote. Um, And, you know, but that wasn't the catalyst that got me sober. It was along the road because after... Like two months later or three months later in February, Ron Wolf, the GM calls me up and he's like, I'm in Michigan at this time, living in Michigan. And uh, he says, we're, you know, just calling you, you know, to say, you know, thanks for your services. And, and we're not going to, you know, resign you or, or even negotiate to resign you. So, you know, you're declared a free agent and you can, uh, you know, shop yourself wherever, And, you know, and I, and I remember the phone call like it was yesterday. I was polite and I was like, you know, thank you and I appreciate the opportunity. And then, you know, when I closed the phone, I thought to myself, yeah, you know, screw those people. They screwed me over, you know, and all this and all that. And it's like, that tells you the ugliness of the disease, right?
0: Because you believe like what
1: it. Yeah, because you believe it. And then, so three years, three more years, and then and, and actually then a month after that, my brother died at 31 from from skin cancer because, and he had already been diagnosed and it got worse and he had died. And so then I had that happen. And then within a year of my brother's death, my parents get divorced after 40 years of marriage. And like, that's a huge blow. So, And you're not feeling,
0: you're not feeling any of this
1: as each thing's happening. I double down and keep taking more.
0: Yeah, like I'll tell you in sobriety and I got to because this is like just one alcoholic talking to another my brother my brother who's sober has has skin cancer and I talked to him today about it now he's Mm -hmm. bouncing back and it's it seems like it's somewhat treatable now you'd have to talk to him or a doctor Mm -hmm. to get the the full story. But I I was telling him, man, I'm stressed and I'm anxious about it. You know, 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I would just be getting hammered through the whole thing. And I would, I would, I don't even know, maybe I'd have moments of breaking down right where it was like emotions that were just gushing. And, you know, now it's hard and it's real and we're kind of all walking through it together. Um, But it sounds like, you know, the opposite of what you're talking about.
1: The thing is you're there. Exactly. You're there and you're clear eyed and that is part of a person's character.
0: Yeah. Well, my grandmother died. I was high on drugs at an off track betting place yep. in Philadelphia, yep. you know? Yeah. Um, yep. so you, all this stuff's happening. You're, you're, you're self-medicating and then yep. you end up in a rehab in Detroit. What, what, yep. what's, what happens and what starts to change?
1: Well, my buddy talked to me, uh, up in Michigan where I'm living. And he says, he's a 10 years older than me. And he's like, uh, if you don't, you know, look, if you don't change what you're doing, it's like, I thought I was hiding it. Well, obviously I wasn't. And he's like, you know, you're going to die. He's like, and I would heard that many times. There was a lot of people in green Bay that tried to help me. Um, and I was like, no, uh, you know, I'm not as bad as you think. Uh, But my buddy talks to me and and somebody that I respect a lot. So I was like, you know, uh, the one thing he said to me that was like a Louisville slugger across my face was, he's like, you know, you've been out of the league three years now. And we weren't even talking about like going back to play football. We were just talking about getting my life in order. And I said, what do you mean I've been out of the league three years? Because it felt like I was out of the league six months. Yeah. And so I was out of the league for three years and I literally went like got up off the couch, walked over to the calendar on the wall, and looked at the date and the year, and I was like, Oh my god, it has been three years. And so, you know, and, and just had, you know, good conversation, just kinda heart to heart conversation. And I said, you know what? I said, What do I have to lose? Uh, you know, I'm miserable now and what do I have to lose? So yeah, and and he did a lot of the footwork like arranging, you know, a place for me. And, um, you know, I paid for it. I didn't have any insurance, so I just used, you know, how how were the finances
0: there. there at the end of the,
1: at the end of that, they were getting slim. Okay. They were getting slim because, you know, with the behavior of alcoholism comes grandiosity and all that other stuff. And grandiosity can be expensive. Um, so, you know, you had to have the best car, you had to have this, you had to have, you know, you couldn't have one little, you know, one ATV, you had to have four, you know, all this. So, and then, and then always, you know, picking up the tab at restaurants for you and your friends and all you, know, you start doing that for years and stuff adds up. But now you're the and, guy with, that
0: had four ATVs and you're sitting in a rehab in Detroit, right?
1: Yes. Yes. Where the
0: playing field yeah. is, is equal, has been level, right. you know? Right. Yeah. Right.
1: And. And here's one of the funny things that happens is where it's like day six, I'm in rehab and I'm in my first like 10 person um, like session with a counselor. So it's like a small group session. Now these other inpatients were alcohol, some kind of a chemical related addiction and, and we're all sitting there and, and we're, Like and the lady goes, and I have to give her credit because this lady was never a drug addict or an alcoholic or any kind of an addict. She was educated and she knew, like, as far as like she was, she was, she learned about the disease and about mental illness and everything. So right away, to me, she kind of like, like for me personally, didn't have as much credibility because she wasn't in the trenches. Yeah. But after what she said, I gave her a lot more credibility because she had directed it towards the group. And she's like, before we start this, you know, one hour discussion, I just all want you to think about this. She's like, each and every one of you, your best plans in life got you into this treatment center room in Detroit, Michigan. And it was like a baseball bat in the head. And because I was like, oh my gosh, she's right. Because all the dreams I had of building my empire and building my brand and doing this and becoming all pro was all consumed by drug addiction. Do
0: you remember what you saw, what you felt? I mean, I bet you remember that exact moment.
1: Oh, it was like, it was like, you've seen the movie Matrix, right? Yeah. You know, when everything goes slow-mo and they're fighting. And it's like everything, like it's like going at a tenth of the speed. It's like the world stops. and it's like, oh my god, she's right. And then it's like your life's almost flashing in your mind about what the hell have I done to myself and to the people around me. And that was like day six. And uh, and and she was right, she nailed it on the head. I mean, she was my best thinking got me into a treatment center. So that made me even more willing to listen to their suggestion. And at day 11, I started laughing again. And I, and I thought that that was not going to happen again. And the, the kind of laughing, it was the kind of laughing where my stomach hurt from laughing. And I forgot that feeling. So once that happened, and I was only in treatment 17 days because I was running out of money. Once that happened on day 11, I there was no big flashing light or nothing of, you know, God or whatever. But it was like one of those, I don't know what's happening here, but whatever it is, I'm digging my nails into it. <laughs> because I actually forgot that feeling of my stomach hurting from laughing so hard and and really but you know been laughing for 27 years almost now and 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 almost on a daily basis with something and and that you know and there's been a lot of tragedy there's been death um of my mom there's been divorce there's been all these i mean life still continues it ends up being on how do i handle what is happening in my life now and um but you know it's it's a it's a much easier, softer, gentler way to live, sober. Um, and you know it's kind of like you're giving yourself a chance to to be the best version of of human being that you can be. Uh, and uh, you know it's life's but but life still happens and you still make mistakes just because you get sober, you don't become a saint. um you still have to change, and it's it's kind of like that horse thief, you know. You get a drunk horse thief that steals horses and you sober him up, what do you have? Now you have a sober horse thief. He still steals horses. He probably does it even better than he's sober. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? We're the problem. Right. A so, lot of times right. I like to
0: think that I'm okay. And it's when I right? rationalize, like, ah, you know, I'm yeah. not I'm not doing that stuff anymore. I'm not drinking, I'm not right? using. So yeah, yeah but, so it's, but like,
1: it's like it's like, so it's like, yeah, the behaviors have to change. Yes. So it's like it's like it's like me saying, Hey, you know what? I don't murder people, so I'm doing good, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, you know and, what I'm and, and
0: we'll believe yeah. any of our bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> so. Hold on, so I got a couple more things before I let you go because uh, I, right. I I want to talk about your comeback into the NFL. You get back to the end. I mean, now this is the unthinkable, right? Because not only are you stripped down from what everybody thought was your superpower, which is you know, steroids, um, yeah. but but yeah. also. It's just a friggin' blow. It's a kick in the nuts what happened oh, to you. yeah, yeah. And, oh, yeah. and so you find – I got to believe, man. And at the time, I didn't know. And you sort of did it quietly, but you build mm-hmm. yourself back into – and what, first, obviously, you, as you've conveyed, you build yourself into a, an esteemable person. But now – You're a good football player again. And you're not going to, it's not like you got in shape, dude. I mean, you you ended up starting again for three years or four years in the NFL for the Colts. How did you get back there?
1: No pun intended, one day at a time. Um, I knew what I had to do. Um, Like, I, I mean, you know, you've been around football your whole life. You know what you need to do. Except things that were not going to be part of the equation were steroids and, and, you know, obviously alcohol doesn't help you become a better football player. And I, steroids, I do believe, I'm not sure they make you become a better football player. I believe they enhance some of your athletic ability. Um, but you still, like you talked about earlier with bond, you still have to have the core part of that athlete. Otherwise every guy here, every guy we know would have a six pack in big arms if steroids work that way, right? Yeah. You so have it's to get like, in the gym. No, you have to put the work in. Yeah. You have to yeah. put the work in. So the, what the counselor, when I was leaving treatment, my counselor said, she said, now I know about, you know, you played pro football, you played college football, athletics is in your history. It's, and she was very crystal clear. She said, it's not going to hurt you to get back into the, like physical fitness. And she's like, and, just in moderation you don't have to you know do, train like you used to because you were training to play for a for a pro sport she's like and she made it crystal clear that is not going to keep you sober what's going to keep you sober is going to meetings getting a sponsor getting into the book doing the 12 steps doing all these things right she was awesome she was awesome <laughs> I, and I, and you know what I couldn't tell you her name yeah but there's a lot of well, people like that
0: that come across, right, in, in, right. in sobriety. I mean, they're just right. like almost angels. And uh, yep. they come I mean, in and they – Yeah,
1: definitely was. So well, what I heard her say was, look, sobriety's first. Do these things. These are the most important things before you worry about anything. And I did. The other thing I heard was, lift like a maniac. <laughs> <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah. so I, so I, I uh, and I, get, you know, I swear on my brother's grave and my mom's grave. Every single day, I left nothing on the plate when it came to the task at hand, whatever it was. There was a six-month period where, for seven days a week, for six solid months. I played racquetball to try to get some foot speed back. So you're talking about, you know, an average of 180 days in a row playing racquetball. <laughs> yeah. To try to get some foot speed back because I knew I was out of the league for, you know, three years. And even though I was still young, 28, 29 years old, now you're you're not that young as far as a pro athlete. And how what's the meeting and
0: situation like when you're when you're crushing it playing racquetball and and getting back into that shape that you know you need you need that footwork you need quick feet.
1: Um, I my meet, like in my twelve step meeting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I average more than one meeting a week for the first five years of my sobriety. Okay. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry. I average more than one meeting a day Okay, for the first five years of my society.
0: That's the, yeah, so that's, that's unbelievable. There were some
1: days, there were some days that, you know, like travel days with the team and stuff where we just couldn't make it to a meeting. So, but there were many Saturdays where a bunch of us would get together in Indianapolis that were like my sponsor and other, you know, program guys that we would hang out with. And we, we would just kind of make it like a marathon day and we would go to like a, Six a.m. meeting, and then go to breakfast. Then we'd go to like a noon meeting, and and then we'd go do whatever we need to do for air and Then we'd go to a speaker meeting at night. So we'd had three meetings in a day. It's not like we felt like we were going to drink. It's like we wanted to go.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's and, you go. I heard a guy say, you know, when he was a younger or, or first coming around, and he asked his sponsor, "How long do I need to go to meetings?" And the sponsor said, Till you want to." And you want right. you want to eventually.
1: Yes. Yes. So was and, there, was, go ahead. No, no, go
0: ahead. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm super curious if there was a guy who you played with or a coach that coached you when you were, you know, in that entitlement bubble, um, when you were Tony Mandrich on drugs and then a mm-hmm. guy who came back across you on a day-to-day basis when you were with the Colts in recovery. Or, or what was, were they like, is this a different human being? Was there a person that ever brought that up to you?
1: Yeah, there were, there were multiple people, um, you know, less I'd say less than 10, but the most interesting one was uh, our head coach, Lindy Infante. Yeah. So he was my head coach in Green Bay, and for the first three years, then Holmgren came in, and then I was there one year with Holmgren, got released, and then Lindy Infante was the offensive coordinator in Indianapolis. Uh, under Ted Marchabroda, and when I signed in February with the Colts, um, about a month later, Ted Marchabroda retired, and the uh, Mr. Ursa, the owner, had named uh, Lindy and Ponte the head coach. So when Lindy saw me for the workouts, when I went down there to work out for Indy, he's like, he looked at me and kind of, laughed like smiled at me and laughed he goes where's like where was this guy in green Bay?" (laughs) (laughs) right yeah because not just this player this guy right right? yeah he's like where where was this guy and and you know and i told him and the, the gm which was Bill Tobin and sure. And how, doctors. yeah, how were you about right.
0: opening up with people about
1: uh, being sober? I told them, I said, and you know, there was like 10, 15 of the people in the room, the scouts, the coaches, Ron Blackledge, the old line coach at the time, um, who was my brother's head coach at Kent state ironically. And, and, and I just said, look, I said, you know, ask me anything you want. And, and then if you don't ask me this one thing, I'm, I, I will bring it up. And they, they asked me a bunch of questions about just normal questions they would ask any athlete. And then, and then, I, and they were like, so what do you want to share? And I said, well, I want you to hear it from the horse's mouth. I said, I had a really bad drug problem and an alcohol problem. I said, a lot of people thought it was the steroids, and the steroids probably definitely contributed along the way. But I said, The core problem in Green Bay was my alcohol and, like, painkiller use. And then three more years of it out of the league, I said, but everybody was so focused on steroids, nobody was seeing the obvious. So I said, I'm I'm 11 months sober now. I said, I go to AA, I go to 12-step meetings. I said, and, and I want you guys to hear it from me. I don't want you to hear it six months from now. I said, you're getting damaged goods. I said, yeah, I was the second player taken in the draft in 1989, now it's 1996, only six, seven years later. But I said, you're getting damaged goods. But I said, I'll give you everything I got every day. And um, they were, you know, they were like shocked. They, they they weren't shocked at the fact that I had the problem. They were shocked at the fact that I told it to them. Yeah. Cause they, cause apparently it wasn't a normal thing to do. And, <laughs> yeah. and, 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 this and is was, a
0: different time, dude. This is what 1995 yeah. or 96? Like, 96, like, yeah. yeah, people yeah. aren't, it's not as, I hate to say this and it's forgive me for this term, but it wasn't as in vogue to be sober then. I mean, oh, yeah, you know? it's
1: cool now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's cool as shit. Now it's like you, you want to be like, you want to be California sober. Yeah. Right. Smoke a little bit of weed here and there and you're good. <laughs> and, um, you know, it works for some people. It, it, it doesn't work, you know, my experience has been it's good for some people because their life is a train wreck, stone cold, sober, and it's not. It's it's a it's a mental illness, like above and beyond alcoholism. Like there's some other chemical things going on where a prescription of say marijuana or whatever, antidepressant or whatever, seems to make that person normal. And it does. Now, those cases I've seen very few of, I've seen a lot of the, hey, well, that one person did it, so I'm going to try it. I've seen hundreds of those cases and then epic fail. Yeah. Right? So I'm like, okay, you guys try it and I'll just sit back and watch (laughs) 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 <laughs> 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 you guys will be my case study. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. cuz I remember those 100 people <laughs> yeah, who did it yeah. and it did not work yeah. for them. Yeah. yeah. Post that like,
1: and and I don't want to go back there. Well, and a I couple couple remember. more things. Yeah.
0: Was there a moment in the NFL on the field when you were like, holy shit, I, I can't believe this?
1: Oh my god. Uh, I I was the day we opened up my first year there, because, you know, they sign you, it doesn't mean you make the team. Um, you still have to go through camp and make the 53-man roster, and I did. And and I'm not starting at this point. I didn't start till halfway through my first season back. But I'm on special teams and doing all that other stuff. So we were in the RCA Dome, so it's covered. We're playing the Cardinals. They come up to India and it's opening day in the NFL, which might be the third greatest day in the world next to, Easter and Christmas. <laughs> um, it, it, you know, it's like, it's like it's, that feeling is indescribable when you have, even though we had a dome, it was semi-transparent, you could see through it. We had like, you know, F-16 flying over the national anthem and it's like, you just can't imagine. The, I mean, I have goosebumps now talking about it. And at that time, I was in that week. It was it was opening day in the NFL, but it was it was close to that week where I was eighteen months sober. And during the national anthem, I'm sitting there, and I it's kind of like this is surreal, because eighteen months prior to that, I couldn't get off the couch because I was too sloth like, and I was consumed in my addiction. And here I was back in the NFL. If somebody would have told me that, I would have said, you're crazy. That's a longer, to me that was a longer shot than going from Canada to the U.S. and getting drafted second. Yeah. And it happened and it's like, I like deep down inside, I knew it could happen because I thought getting sober was impossible. I tried so many different ways and I tried so many times, hundreds, I'm talking hundreds of times, couldn't do it. And then when I got introduced to 12-step, put myself into treatment, and it stuck. And that happened. And when that happened, I knew anything was possible. And so a lot of things, you have to have luck, and a lot of things have to fall in place. And, and, and that happened. And I thought to myself, you know, you're sitting there with 60,000 people, and back in the NFL, I'm in a uniform. Somebody actually gave me a job. Because 18 months ago, I couldn't have worked at a gas station or, or I couldn't have dug ditches. I couldn't have done anything. Not that there's anything wrong with those jobs, oh, yeah. but I, w- I wasn't even competent enough to show up for those jobs. Dude,
0: I lived in a halfway house and I worked at KFC. Now I was sober, but I mean, I was, Wait. you talk about a day at a time, <laughs> I was figuring right. it out. <laughs> you I mean, know, I was starting over.
1: But well, damn, look how many chicken nuggets you got for free. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was that was the perspective.
0: But, you know, when I got sober, yeah, people were right. banging down my door offering me, uh, you know, yeah. was huge yeah. opportunities.
1: So whether, and, and you know what, the feeling that you had by being re-employable and re-employed by KFC, and I'm re-employed by the NFL is the same feeling. It's just a different job because we both thought we are pieces of shit we weren't worth it. We're losers. We're you know a disgrace to our families, and of course here I am talking for you, but I'm telling you. No, you're exactly
0: right, dude. And and, and yeah. I'm like,
1: and all of a sudden, like somebody's actually offering me a job, and I
0: took it seriously. Like, yeah. I remember a fucking guy showed up like uh, an hour late one time. I looked at him, Zach. Yeah. I was like, how dare you? You know.
1: Really? <laughs> How dare you be irresponsible? I would never do something yeah, like that. Uh, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> uh, because I was a new, you know, I was a new yeah. guy, and yeah. I and I took it yep. seriously. You know, I was, yep. I was, and, and yes. it's that's a good reminder for me to take my opportunities today seriously. Um, Absolutely.
1: Uh, all right. It's well, only, uh, and then, and then, and it's only you know. I remember the words in my head were as those F sixteen flew over. I just thought to myself, only by the grace of God am I here today, and then. That said, along with, you know, getting into getting sober and, you know, that act of providence that happened for me and that happens for so many of us.
0: What do you say to the, to the person that's, that's, you know, in the meeting that that's just trying to get one day that, that asks you, you know, what, what do I do?
1: What do you have to lose? I mean, what do you really have to like, why are you here if life's going so good? You're probably not on a winning streak. And to change your circumstances, you have to change your actions. And just give it a chance. Like, just give it, like, a legitimate 30 days. And, And I know that, as you know, putting together three days sometimes felt impossible. But you can do it. And you're not special and unique that you have problems that other people don't have. All you have to do is trust in the process and become part of a that community of the, of a group or, or or don't think you're so unique and special that nobody can relate to you because trust me hundreds and thousands can relate to your problems because they have the same problems some of them have even worse problems so you know that. Uh, There used to be a phrase, I don't know if it's still used, but when I was first going to meetings that there's some people that are just terminally hip and fatally cool to make it. (laughs) Because they don't want to be around the cheesy crowd that's the one day at a time crowd that, and I'm like, you know what? I'll stick with the cheesy, if that's what you call cheesy, I'm in on the cheesy crowd because life's a lot better for me now, you know? And they got nothing, you got nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose and everything to gain. And you still have the choice at the end of those 30 days to say, you know what? My life is worse. So I'm going to go back to drinking because my life's better.
0: It's 30 days
1: for the the rest of your life. And a a, guy
0: that I know in meetings says, we'll refund you your misery.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that's that's the exact, because when you're kicking ass in life, you ever feel compelled if if you've never been to an AA meeting just to show up at an AA meeting. <laughs> no, I, yeah,
0: everybody kind of crawls in there, dude. And, and, and the one thing we haven't mentioned is by opening up and by giving that real shot at that 30 days. You know, man, Tony, there's people who have come around to meetings that actually did give it a shot for 30 days and 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 bared their their heart and soul. And maybe they went back out and died um, yep. for whatever reason. Well, I know why, because we're addicts and that's what we do. But they helped yep. me you know?
1: Absolutely. And that stays Absolutely. with me. Absolutely. And and then you get that person that's in and out, in and out, in and out, like hundreds of times, and you and you think to yourself that person is never going to make it. you see them get 25, 30-day chips over 10 years, and you're like, they're never going to make it. And then all of a sudden you don't see them for years, and they're like four years sober. And you're like, oh my god. It's like you just you just never know when a person's ready, they're ready. And like I said, you don't, you don't go to AA because you're kicking ass. You know, when you're, when you first come to AA, you go to AA because you get your ass kicked. If you're, if you're drinking chemically and and, and doing stuff like that. And um, it's, uh, it's a very, I, uh, you know, and I do say AA and I do say 12 steps. But it's, it's it's a very sacred thing for me. Um, and I hold it really, you know, dear to my heart.
0: Dude, I, I can't thank you for taking the time, um, to, to spend time with us. I mean, you know, you're an amazing photographer. You, you, you do public speaking clearly, you, you know, you spoke to me today and, and publicly ultimately, and I think we're going to help or you're going to help some people and the book and just with this podcast, the book is my dirty little secrets, right? You can get it on Amazon. Yep.
1: Yeah, you get on Amazon.
0: What else can they find you? What else you got going on? Anything I can share?
1: Um, my website is my name, so it's just TonyManderish.com and it's got uh, it's mostly right now got my photography on it, but I'm gonna I'm actually just gonna make it a central hub. It's gonna have my photography. Um, I'm dabbling into the podcasting stuff, uh, and and got some other projects going on. My public speaking information will eventually be there. But I just wanted to be one source, you know, one place, one-stop shop. Um, but my, my most of my concentration is is you know the public speaking, the photography, and um, and you know just being of service.
0: And you know you're Tony Manders, so people can find you.
1: I mean, and I, just like I did, I, you know,
0: I yeah, sent you a direct yeah. message, and you're of service, and you know, you got right back yeah. to me. And yeah. uh, my
1: only and about the only social media I really go on is Instagram, and uh, even though I have a Facebook account, everything from Instagram syndicates the other social media that I have. But I don't. The only place I would like log in on is Instagram, and because it, you couldn't build a better platform for photographers.
0: No, it's awesome, and right. your, your your photography is unbelievable. And I think a lot of people will be shocked. I think people were shocked when they saw you back in the NFL, and I think they'll be shocked by some of your, you know, your eye, and uh, yeah. it's unbelievable work. And dude, I I cannot thank you enough. For me, somebody oh. who, you know, you've been in my life for, for like three decades, you know, and uh, <laughs> to be able to have this moment with you and share with you uh, in sobriety is just unbelievable. I remember when you came back with the Colts, and I was still. You know, I was in the middle of it. I didn't even know I had a problem, right. but I loved the feeling of you getting back on top and, uh, you know, just sharing with you and, and, and yeah. you know, and also relating that it's an everyday struggle regardless of where yep. you are, um, yep. but you got to do the work.
1: Yeah, you got to do the work. And, it's, uh, and, and, you know, just our whole discussion today is really how you and I dialogue, whether we were doing a podcast or where we were sitting having coffee. Yeah. It's, It's just, that's how the program works. And it's, uh, it's just phenomenal. I mean, you know, I'm 20, almost 27 years on borrowed time and I take every day extremely seriously and, and, and I'm very lucky to be sober.
0: Tony, man, thank you so much. This is going to be up on Thursday. I will, I'll send you a link to it and I, and and I'll be in touch, man. I can't thank you enough.
1: Awesome. I really appreciate it. And um, I'll make sure I share it and everything. All right. Take care, Tony. All right, my friend. Have a good day. You too, buddy. Bye-bye.